it, wherever you are today, you're here in large part because of your friends. You know, I look back in my life, and, and if, you, if you like me, and I hope you do, but if you like Mark Hoover, you need to know that a lot of what you see in me and what you like in me is because through the years I've had wonderful friends. And someone has said, if when you die you've had five friends, five real friends, then you're a very blessed person. And I have, and my life has been greatly influenced by friends. I remember when I was a 20-year-old senior in college, a church called me to be on their staff. It was my first experience with, experience with pastoring. And I was in a little town called Mansfield, Texas, just south of Fort Worth. And it was on the border of a suburban area and a rural area. And it was just a, a cool little church. It was pastored by a friend of my dad's named Jack Miles. And Jack was probably my age at the time that I am now. Uh, and he had a thick Cajun accent. So every time I think about anything Jack told me, I always hear it coming in this thick Cajun accent. But one day he was driving and we were making calls. And Jack said something to me. He said, Mark, I want to tell you what I think. And in this, just imagine this in this thick cage and draw. He said, you're really talented. And he said, I think you're going to go a long way. And he said, I think, you're going to, I think God's going to take you great distances. But he said, never forget something. Never forget the people who helped you on the way up. And even today, even though I doubt if Jack would remember that and he's up in years. And, but today, I'm here today partially because of my friend Jack Miles and what he meant to me and other friends just like that. On the other hand, some of us can look back at some of the worst things that we've done in our lives, things that we're most ashamed of, habits that we got into that were very detrimental to our lives, and a lot of it was because we were just hanging with the wrong people and we had the wrong friends. So with that in mind, I want to take us to a verse in the Bible that you and I are going to experience several times over the next five weeks as I talk about friends. And this verse says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, there are friends, and I think the NLT has it right because it puts quotation marks around friends to set it off, as if to suggest these are people who feel like friends, seem like friends, but they're not real friends. There are friends who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother. I just think that's a powerful verse for all of us to consider. And guys, please understand, I, I love Facebook, so I'm not about to rip Facebook. I, all I want to make, the, the only point I want to make out of this is just that I, I think that probably one of the most overused used words today in the English language is the word friend. Because I have people that tell me, well, I have 500 friends on Facebook. Well, I know what that means. You have 500 people that you're in communication with and you're sharing stuff about each other's lives. And that's a cool thing. But I do think, don't you think, please, that the word friend is maybe a little bit overused in that context? And, and the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this series is I'd like for us to drill down and to know what it is to have a real friend and to be a real friend. So when you hear that verse that I hope we all took to heart a few moments ago, that there are friends who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother, I hope that you'll begin thinking about friend in the term of the Bible context of a real friend. Now, here's what our natural inclination is when we hear that verse. The natural inclination is, well, how can I have a real friend? How can I find real friends? And we're going to spend some time talking about that because that is a fair question. But I think it's the wrong question to ask. Have you ever met anybody that just is always moping about, I don't have any friends. I don't have any friends. You're, you know, some of you are in high school, and you know somebody there, I don't have any friends. You at work, I don't have any friends. Nobody will be my friend. And you, you want to tell them, you know why? You're a pain and you're a difficult person. <laughs> See, here's the thing. <laughs> we used to have a store when I was growing up in Dallas-Fort Worth area. We used to have a store that I never visited much in my family. We were much more Kmart people. But there was a store in Dallas-Fort Worth area called Neiman Marcus. And Neiman Marcus catered to the wealthiest people. And there are a lot of wealthy people in Dallas and Fort Worth. And there was a saying about Neiman Marcus because a lot of times when you walked into Neiman's and you looked at stuff on the shelf, there were no price tags. And there was a saying about Neiman's that if you have to ask the price, 
Yeah, you can't afford it. And so I really think that the question, when we ask the question, how can I find a true friend, we've set ourselves up from failure from the very beginning because that's the wrong question to ask. Many years ago, I used to speak at a lot of conferences, and I spoke outside of New Spring a lot, but New Spring was much smaller then, and, and traveling and speaking was, was easier for me. So I went all over the country, you know, speaking and doing conferences and doing messages and doing talks. And I remember there was a young man that I encountered who was young in the ministry, but he had a great amount of talent. He was very gifted, very talented, very charismatic, and he too was beginning to be invited into some of these venues. The only thing was, like some young young people can be, he was very full of himself. I mean, he knew he was talented. He knew he had charisma. And, and so because he knew, he was just sort of full of himself. And personally, I thought he was a little bit obnoxious. Thankfully, he's growing up, he's doing a great job someplace now, and I'm real proud of him. But back in the time, I wasn't, okay? But anyway, we happened to be speaking together at the same conference at a church in Tennessee. And after the conference, he asked me, he said, may I have a little time to talk with you? And I said, yes. And he said, i got to ask you a question. He said, I've spoken in quite a few places where you've spoken. You've already been there. And he said, they love you. And all they can talk about is we want him back, we want him back. How soon can we have him back? He said, I speak in those churches, and it's like, how soon can we get rid of him? And we never want to see this guy again. So he asked me the question. He said, let me, let me, here's the question I want to ask you. How do you get people to like you? What is it? Now tell me your secret. What is it about you that when you go into a place, people like you so much? And it was the Neiman's thing. Instantly, I thought about Neiman's. If you have to ask the price, you can't afford it. And I said, you, you've got it so wrong. I never ask, how can I get an audience to like me? I always realize I have 30 seconds to tell them I like them. I have 30 seconds to affirm them. I have 30 seconds to tell them how blessed I am to be able to be in their church and talk to them. I mean, especially if I'm in a foreign country. I remember speaking in Canada. There's a little bias against Americans in parts of Canada. And I remember when I was in Toronto, one of the first things out of my mouth is I had to say how delighted I was to be in Canada and even picked up some of their vernacular so that I could let them know how much I cared for them. Now, if the question, how can I get people to like me, is the wrong question to ask, and the answer or the better question is, how can I show people that I like them? It's on the same platform of asking the question, how can I find a real friend? Because that's the wrong question to ask. See, here's the thing. If you ask, how can I find the right friend, you're looking for somebody else to be something. But when you ask the question, how can I be a real friend, you will draw to yourself real friends. When you ask yourself, how can I be the right kind of person, you will draw the right kind of person. One of my closest friends, he may be here in this service, he usually attends on Sunday, but he's a real close friend of mine. He's a genius when it comes to HR. He's brilliant. He's served several corporations at the very top, hiring even top executives. And one of the things that he taught me many years ago is he said, A people draw A people and C people draw C people. And I, he didn't say it, but I guess F people draw F people. Our series begins with a story in the Bible of real friendship. I want to take you to a story in Scripture that is spelled out for us over several chapters. And, and outside of the person of Jesus, I would say this is the greatest story of friendship in the Bible. And some of you who know your Bible already, you know where I'm going. It is the friendship between a couple of guys named David and Jonathan. Now, even if you haven't been in church a lot, chances are you've heard about David. He's the one who killed the Goliath, killed Goliath and was king of Israel, wrote the book of Psalms, and, or most of the book of Psalms, and some other books. Great man. But who you, the person you may not know is Jonathan. And so what I want you to understand is that unlike a lot of sermons in which David is involved, this is not a sermon about David. This is a talk about Jonathan. 
And what's interesting about this is that Jonathan might have been actually the better person. Jonathan, I think, actually had higher character than David had. And personally, I feel like Jonathan is the unsung hero of the Old Testament, and I'm so fond of him and so love this character in the Bible that when Mary Alice and I were having our first child, we named him Jonathan after this very, very special person. Godly man, crown prince, courageous hero, champion's champion. But guys, let me tell you this. Say the name Jonathan to me from the Scripture, and the first word that comes to mind is friend, friend. Jonathan is the quintessential friend. If there ever was anybody who asked, how can I be a real friend, it was Jonathan. And now I want you to meet him. I'd like for you to meet Jonathan. His very name means gift of God. And by the way, if you have a true friend, that friend is a gift from God. Never forget that. Now, it's interesting that Jonathan is the son of Saul, and he's such a noble person because Jonathan's dad was a jerk. I mean, there's no other way of saying that. And by the way, since we have a Jonathan here, don't take that too far, okay, please. <laughs> but Jonathan's dad, Saul, was just like an absolute jerk. I need to let you know about Saul. And there's a little history that goes with that, so I'll try to give it to you real quickly so that you'll have context. Back before Saul, Israel did not have a king. God had said to Israel, I will be your king. You don't need a king. I will take care of you. Now, guys, let me tell you, I've just watched both political conventions. I'm not, no disrespect to either one of them. I would love so much to have God for a king. Wouldn't it be great? I mean, really, I would love, you know, because they're all promised things. And, and, and isn't it true? I mean, whether you're Democrat or Republican or Independent or whatever you are, isn't it true when you sit there and you listen to promises on both sides, you're saying, no, nah, you can't. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. But wouldn't it be great to have God because you would never hear God make a speech and say, no, you can't do that because you're looking at the creator of the universe. So the Israelites were so blessed and they should have said, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you are king. But instead of doing that, the Israelites watched other nations and they had these big days with pageants and the king would ride out there on a white horse. And everybody would be gaga over the king and he was in their People magazine and all that kind of stuff. So the, just grant me a little space here. Samuel, who was the prophet, who was kind of like the spokesman for God, the people went to Samuel and they said, hey, we want a king so that we can be like other nations. And went, why would you want to be like other nations if God is your king? And Samuel was so hurt by it. He went to God. He said, God, the people are asking for a king. And God said to Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. I said this to you in the prayer series. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is for God to answer your prayer if he answers it against his will. And on occasion, he will do that. If we press him, and if we tell him, you're not being fair to me, God sometimes will say, okay, I'll let you have it. It's not best for you, but I'll give it to you. And so that's what happened. God said, well, they're not going to like it very much, but I'll give them a king. They want somebody that looks good. God gave them Saul. When I think about Saul, I think about a cardboard cutout. Because Saul was like seven feet tall, very handsome, very regal. You know, he looked, he looked really great. But the problem was he, was he was soft as dough on the inside. But he looked good. But he was a jerk, and God kept telling him to do stuff. He'd never do stuff the way God would somebody. I, I need a great Bible scholar. Would somebody here please tell me how a guy like Saul can have a son like Jonathan and a guy like David can have a son like Absalom? I do not get that. One of the questions I want to ask God when I get to heaven. But this, uh, this jerk for a king wound up with an extraordinary son named Jonathan. I want to introduce you to him, and maybe this story will help. 
Back in the day, the Israelites were being oppressed by a group of people known as the Philistines. Philistines were the toughest people in the neighborhood. They lived along the seacoast. They were mighty warriors. They were very good at warfare. And they clearly had their hands around the throat of the Israelites, so much so that the Philistines would not allow the Israelites to have a blacksmith because they were concerned that if they had blacksmiths, they would make weapons. So if an Israelite needed to have his plow sharpened or his hoe sharpened, he'd have to go to a Philistine blacksmith. And, of course, when Saul begins to gather the troops together to go after the Philistines. These are farmers who have farm implements. And Saul is not the greatest leader. I mean, he would go out and make great speeches, and then he'd go hide. He'd go sit under the tree and, and relax. And so clearly the guy saw there's no way in the world we're going to be able to follow this guy. And so all of a sudden they have mass desertion. And they got down to where there were only about 600 people, 600 soldiers. Now put yourself in, in this scenario because the Israelites are not soldiers. They're farmers. They don't have weapons. They have farm implements. They've had mass desertion. All they have left is 600. They have a king who doesn't have anything in his guts to fight. There was only one guy in Israel who thought, this is a great time to attack, and his name was Jonathan. I want to read this to you. Just, 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 just feel this. Later that day, Jonathan Saul's son said to his armor bearer, come on, let's go over to the Philistine garrison patrol on the other side of the pass. But he didn't tell his father. Here's why. Saul was taking it easy under the pomegranate tree. Now listen, you got 600 guys. Troops are leaving every day. You're the king. You need to do something about this. you got tough people in the neighborhood that are oppressing you. All you've got is a bunch of farm implements, and yet Saul is over here taking it easy, drinking lemonade, being fanned under the pomegranate tree. And Jonathan, his son, is saying, somebody needs to do something about this, and I'm going to take on the whole Philistine army if I have to. I like this guy. But listen to this. 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on now, let's go across to these uncircumcised pagans. Now, is Jonathan full of himself? Not hardly. Maybe God will work for us. I mean, Jonathan's not claiming, you know, he's not one of these word of faith people that's just claiming God's going to do something. He doesn't know. He's just saying maybe God will work for us. I don't know. But let's just, somebody needs to do something here. Maybe God will work for us. There's no rule. I love this. There's no, I've loved this all my life. There's no rule that says God can only deliver by using a big army. No one can stop God from saving when he sets his mind to it. I like Jonathan, don't you? And, and I'm not going to read this to you, but it's really interesting what Jonathan did next because um, he said to his armor bearer, we're going to go out and show ourselves to these Philistines. Now, everybody else in Israel was hiding. But Jonathan said, we're going to go out and we're going to say, hey, here we are. And Jonathan, he said to his armor bearer, a little test here. If they say, stay where you are and we'll come down to you, now that would have been the better strategic position for Jonathan because he could have taken them on as they came on his own terms. So Jonathan says, listen, if they say, stay where you are and we'll come down to you, then God's not in this thing. But if they say, come up to us, which would have been strategically much more difficult for Jonathan, Jonathan said, well, no, God's in this thing. So in other words, he didn't say, if it's easy, we'll know God's in it. He said, if it's hard, we'll know God's in it. If it's impossible, we'll know God's in it. One man with his armor bearer taking on the whole Philistine army? And Jonathan is saying, okay. And, and when Jonathan, well, let's read this. Jonathan shouted to his armor bearer, up, follow me. God has turned them over to Israel. Because when the Philistines saw him, they said, well, we're going to come down and show you. Or you guys come on up and we'll show you a thing or two. And Jonathan said, all right, let's go. And he went up there. And it may not make any sense at all, but Jonathan caught them in a tight pass where they would have to come out one by one. And 20 Philistines were dead by the time Jonathan got through TCOB. I mean, after he got through taking care of business, he killed. He took on 20 Philistines, one by one, and won every match. 
And the Bible says that when the other Israelites saw what Jonathan had done, they were inspired. They got up and went after the Philistines, and they won a great battle. Man, think about this. No wonder he's the crown prince. Taking on the whole Philistine army just by himself, saying, maybe God will do something to help us while his dad was sleeping under the tree. Going to make a great king, right? Crown prince. Boy, can't wait till he's king. Let's meet David. David is the very opposite of Jonathan. Jonathan grew up a prince. Jonathan grew up wearing Armani suits. Jonathan grew up fair-haired boy. Everybody loved him. David was the eighth of eight sons from a little nowhere place that would become famous because he was born there and because one of his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandsons was born there. He came from a little town called Bethlehem that nobody had ever heard of. And so nobody ever expected anything out of him. He was from a no, nothing family. He was the eighth of eight sons. He, in fact, his family didn't think much of him. They had him out guarding the sheep. That was the lowest job in the family. I don't know if any of you are the youngest in your family, but if you are, there are just certain jobs that gravitate down to you. If you're the baby. And so that's where David is growing up. Nothing expected of him much. He, he, he poor, eats poor, dresses poor, smells like wet sheep all the time. In the process of time, Jonathan's father has made God so angry that God said to Saul, the pro- Samuel the prophet, I- I'm so sick and tired of Saul, I want you to anoint a new king for me. And God said, go down to Bethlehem. There's a man that lives there named Jesse. He's got a son. I want that son to be king. And so Samuel sets a convocation date and goes down to Bethlehem and meets with the people of the city and brings forward. He doesn't tell them what he's there to do, but he brings forward Jesse and Jesse's sons. And there Jesse brings seven sons to stand before Samuel. You remember a moment ago I told you he has eight, but he only brings seven. Why? Because nobody expects anything out of David. He's the baby. He's the runt. He's out keeping the sheep. And at that point, Samuel has his horn of oil. Now, the oldest is Eliab. He is a whole lot like Saul. He's tall. He's handsome. I remember I used to buy gasoline in Texas many years ago before I moved to Kansas. The shop, the little store I bought gasoline from had a framed $20 counterfeit bill behind the counter, and they had a little words, a little line scribbled on it. It said, no thanks, we already have one. And I think that when Samuel saw Eliab, he thought he's the oldest son. He's surely the one God wants. And he had the horn of oil out ready to pour it on his head. And God said, no thanks, I already have one of those. And then he went to the next one. No thanks, I already got one. I don't want them. Third son. And all the way down to the end, the seventh sons. And I guess Samuel's thinking, well, you know, you've heard about the seventh son. Maybe it's the seventh one. And he had the horn of oil out. And God said, nope, don't want him either. And Samuel said, wait a minute to Jesse. Don't, did, I mean, I don't know if I got a message wrong from God. Is, is this all your sons? And he said, oh, we got one more. But he's keeping sheep. We don't think much of him. He's just a teenager, just a runt. And Samuel said, we don't eat till he gets here. So they went out and got him real fast and brought him in. And, and he, I still hope God kept this on video because I just want to see this moment. Can you, imagine, can you imagine the elderly prophet locking eyes for the first time with this teenage kid? And God said, this is my guy. This is my and David is anointed king. Now, if you're here and you're a teenager, I want you to know something. You know where David went after he was anointed king? Back to the sheepfold. <laughs> Boy, you've been anointed king. Okay, go back, take care of the sheep. Well, in the process, you know, Jonathan has stirred up, stirred up a hornet's nest. And now the Israelites and the, and the Philistines are mixing it up. 
And so because Jonathan has inspired this uptick in, in Israeli activity, you know, the, Saul is calling for everybody to send their sons to come become soldiers. So guess what Jesse does? Jesse sends his seven sons to become soldiers. But David, he's not going to be a soldier. Why? He's out there with the sheep. Somebody's got to watch the sheep. So all of a sudden, David's older brothers, they're wearing military regalia and soldiers and the fighting men. They go off to war. But again, you know, Saul is real good at marching the troops up and down, but not so much good at taking on the enemy. And in the meantime, the enemy, the Philistines, have come up with a whole new bag. There's one particular Philistine giant soldier who is a giant. His name is Goliath, and he's an extraordinarily big guy. If you read it in the Bible, he's so big, it's hard to imagine. And so what, what would happen is Goliath would come out and trash talk. He would say to the Israelites, hey, there's no reason in both sides fighting and having all that carnage and death and everything. Just send me out your best man. We'll go mano a mano. Your guy wins, your team wins. I win, my team wins. Well, nobody's going to take on Goliath. I mean, Saul is just all the Israelites being very quiet. You know, Goliath would come out and taunt Israel. He would taunt Israel's God. Well, one day Jesse said to David, I want you to take some food to your brothers in the field. So here walks in this kid dressed as a shepherd. He walks in. He walks in just as Goliath is coming out to give his speech. And David hears that, and you know, David said, you know, that guy ought not to be allowed to talk that way. And his oldest brother said, why don't you just get back with those few sheep? You don't have any business down here. And, and, and David said, wait a minute, isn't there a cause? So the word went to King Saul that there was somebody here who was willing to fight the giant. I think Saul was thinking some big, strong country boy came out, you know, who's ready to take him out. He sees David, teenage kid, thinking, son, you don't know what you're getting into. He said, you don't understand. This guy's huge. He's bigger than all of us. And he's been a fighting man since his youth. You don't stand a chance. And David said, I'm trusting in God. So he went after Goliath. Remember, he had a bag of five rocks and a slingshot that he had. I mean, all he did all day long was he could hit the left eye of a gnat at 100 yards. I mean, David was just, and he let it go. The stone sunk in Goliath's forehead. Knocked him out cold. David then finished business, took out Goliath's sword, cut off his head, held up his head, and the Israelites said, let's go get them, and they routed the Philistines. And from that point on, David, he became kind of a rock star in Israel. Well, you've met Jonathan, and you've met David. I think it's time for them to meet each other, don't you? But before we let them meet each other, well, let's make a point. Chances are they're not going to like each other. I mean, think, just, just think with me. I mean, they're not going to like each other. Because for one thing, Jonathan is crown prince, but then David has been anointed the next king. And it's not Jonathan's fault. Jonathan's been nothing but great. It's his daddy's fault. I mean, by rights, he should be the next king. And not only does he deserve it by, by primogenitor, but he deserves it because he's a good guy. And now all of a sudden, here comes this other guy, this shepherd kid, and he's been anointed king. So surely they shouldn't like each other because of that. Jonathan's high society. David still smells like wet sheep. Everybody's gone gaga because David has killed one Philistine. Jonathan killed 20. I'm just telling you, this thing is set up for them not to like each other. So how'd their first meeting go? Let's read it. By the time David had finished reporting to Saul, Jonathan was deeply impressed with David. An immediate bond was forged between them. He became totally committed to David. From that point on, he would be David's number one advocate and friend. Now, there are many people that, whom I love, but my inner circle of close friends, let me just say this. There are some people I didn't like at first, and over time, I came to like them. That's never been the case with my closest friends. And this may sound simplistic, 
but it's just true. I can't explain why. And, and a lot of times I can't explain specifically why. But my closest friends, we just clicked. Isn't that true? I mean, help me with that. Isn't it true that really when you get down to it, your soulmates, you just clicked. There was something that the moment you met them, you just clicked. And that's what happened between Saul and Jonathan. They met each other and they just clicked. Why does that happen? Let's calibrate that a little bit. Well, first of all, it was a God thing. I mean, remember this, Jonathan's name means gift of God. If you have a real friend, that's a gift of God. So let's not rule God out of this. I think a lot of times when we get together and we meet people that we're going to be closest friends with, whom we're going to impact and they're going to impact us, I think God brings us together. I mean, Lord knows David was going to need a friend because before long, Jonathan's daddy was going to try to kill David. He, in fact, a lot of 1 Samuel is the story of how Saul is hunting for David. So I think, I think it's a God thing. And then I think one reason why they clicked was they had a lot in common. And I don't mean by that they both liked Italian food and pull for the cowboys. I mean, they, they had a lot in common, you know. <laughs> Especially this is more in romantic relationships where people say, oh, we have so much in common. We both like Italian food. Like hero movies and stuff. I mean, that's not having something in common. I mean, these two guys had something to talk about, you know. You know, there was a Philistine out there taunting, and I just said, man, something ought to be done about that. And then David said, yeah, I know how you feel, Jonathan. I felt the same way. I mean, these are people who at the core, when it came to core values, they clicked because they were about the same thing. They both had an act of faith in God when other people just had religion. You remember, Jonathan said, who knows, God, God can do whatever he wants to do. And that's when he took off after the Philistine. It was David who went down to meet Goliath. And when Goliath taunted him, he said, you come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. I mean, these are guys that had active confidence in God. I have a hard time being a close friend with somebody who doesn't have an active confidence in God. And then here's a big one. Because we're talking about why do we click with people? I believe they energized each other. See, my closest friends, and, and, and a lot of my inner, inner circle here at New Spring, leaders like Billy Poor and Dan Kubish, a lot of those guys, those, they, they, bef long before they served on our staff, they were friends of mine. They were laymen here at New Spring. And very early on, when I first met them, I met Dan in 1987, I met Billy in 1991, I noticed something about it. I tended to energize them, and they energized me. And all these years later, when we get together, that still happens. We energize each other. I have friends that Mary Alice loves to see come to Wichita, because when we're around them, they energize me, and I energize them. Let me, and I'll, I will we'll say this for another week, but let me just say this right now. If you've got friends and they drain you, you got the wrong friends. You got the wrong friends. But from now on, and since I have about 14 minutes left, I want to talk to you about Jonathan. I just want to focus on Jonathan. Because the Bible says about Jonathan, we read this a moment ago, immediate bond was forged between them. He became totally committed to David. Now, we know that David loved Jonathan, but most of the time when the Bible talks about this relationship, the Bible says Jonathan loved David. Now, what was it about Jonathan? What were the qualities that made him such a great friend? I want to give you four today, and I know that there are many more, but I want to give you four because here's the thing. You and I need to test ourselves. We have started today by asking, how can I be a true friend? We'll talk about how to find true friends later, but how can we be a true friend? Test yourself with these qualities. Here's the first one. 
1 Samuel 18, verse 3. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe, giving it to David together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. Now, I just see them, and they just met. David's still dressed like a shepherd. Jonathan's dressed like a king. And Jonathan says, David, I don't, I don't really like your wardrobe here too much, buddy. I'm going to give you my robe. I'm going to give you my sword. I'm going to give you my belt. I'm going to give you all my Armani stuff, all the princely stuff, and we'll let you have it. Now, what, what was behind that? Much more than it sounds. Let me ask you a question, because I think the moment I ask you this question, you'll be able to contextualize it. Have you ever had a friend who was your friend until their bigger friend showed up? Some of you in high school right now. And you know what it's like to have a friend, they'll eat lunch with you in the cafeteria until their other friends, until their jock friends show up. I mean, here's the thing. There are a lot of relationships. Help me, correct me if I'm wrong. There are a lot of relationships in which you're down here and that other person is up here. She, she knows her appearance is up here, and, and in her mind, your appearance is here, and so consequently, as long as she's not with her chicer friends, is that a word, chicer? Um, it is now. Uh, you know, that's how it works. And then when she gets together with her, you know, her, her boutique friends, you're gone. That's not friendship. A true friend identifies Jonathan said, David, it's not going to be a relationship where you're down here and up, up here. I want you on the same level that I am, a true friend identifies. Okay, here's, let's go to the second thing. And the reason why I want to spend some time here is that most of us cannot be a true friend because we cannot or we will not do number two. So, now, we could, and that's what I hope this will inspire you to do, but really most of us will struggle to be a true friend because as 21st century Americans, we have a real hard thing with this second one. A little background. Saul now has gone crazy. He is freaked out. He wants to kill David. He's jealous, insanely jealous of David, has the idea that David is going to steal the throne from him. He has no reason to be jealous. Saul will rule for 42 years. It's not like he won't get his turn at bat. If anybody has a reason to be jealous, it's Jonathan, because Jonathan will never be king because of David. But Saul is freaking out, and he wants to kill David. And he tells, Saul tells his son, Jonathan, we need to whack David because we just, I just don't think he's loyal. Now listen to how Jonathan spoke to his dad. This is in 1 Samuel 19, verse 4. The next morning, Jonathan spoke with his father about David, saying many good things about him. Saul is ripping him. Jonathan is saying many good things about him. The king must not sin against his servant David, Jonathan said. He's never done anything to harm you. He's always helped you in any way he could. Have you forgotten about the time he risked his life to kill the Philistine giant, how the Lord brought a great victory to all Israel as a result? You're certainly happy about it then. Why should you murder an innocent man like David? There's no reason for it at all. And here's the one most of us can't do. A friend defends, especially when it's difficult. Guys, there's something about Americans I just don't get. Honestly, I don't get it. And let me tell you something. I spend my life around pastors, and pastors can be this way. Many times I've been with a group of leaders, and all of a sudden they begin to rip somebody. And sometimes that person they're ripping is a friend of mine. And they'll, it's just like a pack of, isn't it right? Isn't it like a pack of animals? 
I mean, don't you see this at work? People gather around and they start ripping, you know, some, somebody there, and they start talking about her and this and this and this and this and this. And it's like everybody joins in. And, and haven't you been in situations where you're like with people and they're ripping this person? You're thinking, but wait a minute, aren't you her friend? I saw you eating lunch with her yesterday. But you're joining in. And people will join in or, or you know, this is the American way. I'm going to try to find middle ground somewhere. Yeah, she's got some problems, you know, got some good things. And, but you join in enough to be accepted. Because see, here's the deal. We want to be popular with that crowd. And we understand clearly if we say, hey, wait a minute, you're ripping somebody that I care a whole lot about. And, you know, I, I just don't think it's right for us to rip her. You know, if you have a problem with her, why don't we just sit, go talk to her about the problem instead of ripping her? You understand that crowd will probably never have anything to do with you, and they'll be ripping you tomorrow. See, most Americans can't do that. We have to be popular. That's why many of us can't be a true friend. I don't mean defending somebody who's doing wrong. I mean... Obviously, if somebody's doing wrong, we go to them, we talk to them about it, we don't talk to other people about it. But, you know, Saul is ripping David, you know, and he's just going off on David, and Jonathan could say, well, you know, I know him, he does have a few faults, Daddy. But no, he doesn't. He says, wait a minute, Dad, you get thinking about this all wrong. And he defends his friend, especially when it's unpopular. It's getting quiet in here, so let's just move on. Number three. On David's, one of David's worst days. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a close friend? And, you, and I, they just, they're having one of the worst days of their lives. And you just, you watch your friend that you love so much just come unglued right in front of you. By the way, that's, you know what? If you've got a friend who loves you enough that they'll just come unglued in front of you, that's somebody that's pretty vulnerable and thinks a lot of you. And David's having one of those days. Usually he's a man with great courage, but this is a day, this is a bad day for David, and David just craters in front of Jonathan. He's just falling apart. I want you to listen to how Jonathan reacted. 1 Samuel 20, verse 4. Tell me what I can do to help you, Jonathan exclaimed. I mean, this isn't Jonathan saying, okay, here comes David again. He's got the problem du jour. Okay, David, what's on your mind? No, no, no. He's saying, David, what can I do to help? I, I see your world's falling apart. Just tell me, what can I do to help you? I want to help you. I, I'm, ex I'm, I'm exclaiming this because I'm excited. I want to help you. It's in my heart to help you. Just tell me what I can do to help you. See, a true friend, number three, wants to be there for you when you're in trouble. We're going to talk about that in one of the weeks. I want to give you the fourth thing. Let me ask you a question before I get there. Can you handle it if your friend gets the promotion that you wanted? Sometimes it's easier to watch an enemy get what you want than to see your best friend get it. I cannot tell you how many friendships I've seen blow up because of jealousy. Can you handle it if your friend gets a house that's three times as big as yours? Can you handle it if your friend is blessed way beyond the way that you'll ever be blessed? Can you handle it if your friend gets something you can never have? Can you handle it if your friend has a happy marriage and you don't? I've loved this verse since I was a little boy. 1 Samuel 23, 17. Don't be afraid, Jonathan reassured him, David. 
My father will never find you. You're going to be the king of Israel. Listen to that. Think about that. Here's Jonathan, crown prince. David, don't worry. You're going to be the king, and I'll be there next to you. Jonathan wouldn't live to see that happen. But here is the crown prince saying, you're going to have what I can't have, but don't worry. It's going to be great. I'll be there to help you. You're going to be king. See, a true friend is okay if you get what he can't have. I'm thinking about a friend that I had in elementary school. When I was in elementary school, we went all the way through the sixth grade. So I was in the sixth grade. And I had a best friend named David Henderson. And David and I used to tell everybody we were cousins because his uncle married my aunt. But anyway, we were not strictly cousins, but we told everybody that. And Dave was a really good athlete. He used to, he used to introduce, us, introduce me to his friends. He would say, this is Mark. I score all the touchdowns. Mark makes all the A's. And, but hey, this, is, this, is, this is more than you want to know. But you got to understand, in this, I went to a big elementary school. And, and all, all the six years that I'd been there, or five years I'd been there before the sixth grade, the biggest people on campus were patrol boys. I mean, you know, there were students, there were teachers, there were principals, and then there were patrol boys. I mean, they were just like superhero-like figures. I mean, those patrol boys, they wore this, you know, white belt, cross Barney Fife belt with a badge, <laughs> big silver badge. I mean, they're just huge. I mean, first grade, you, second grade, you know, there's a patrol boy, just the biggest guys on campus. When I was in sixth grade, the, the advisor came to me and said, would you like to be a patrol boy? Now, yeah, I wanted to be a patrol boy. But I told my dad, and dad said, I'm sorry, we, our, our family schedule just won't allow because it took a lot of extra time, so I can't be a patrol boy. But David was a patrol boy. And not only is he a patrol boy, you need to understand this more than you want to know. But there were two officers of the patrol boys. There was a lieutenant that had a red insert in his badge, and there was a captain that had a blue insert in the badge, and David was captain. Well, we were in six-week six week periods back during those days, and so the report cards came out for six weeks, and you had to make really, really good grades to be a patrol boy. And I don't know what grade he made, but unfortunately, David made a grade that disqualified him. And we were all kind of looking over our report cards at the end of the day. And I still remember like yesterday, David came and he grabbed me by the arm and he said, come with me. And I didn't even know what he was up to. And so we walk, walked into Miss Odell's office, who was the supervisor, faculty supervisor. And he said, Miss Odell, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I've made a grade. I'm not going to be able to be a patrol boy anymore. And he said, uh, I want Mark to take my place. And she said, I'm fine with that. I want him to be a patrol boy anyway. But I'll never forget as long as I live was David said, and I want him to have my badge. So all year long, I was captain of the patrol boys. Somewhere in my mother's artifacts is a little tiny replica badge with a blue insert that says captain. <laughs> now, I don't know if David remembers me, but I remember him. I remember him as long as I live. I'll never forget the day that my friend wanted me to have what he couldn't have. I want Mark to take my place. I want him to have my badge. That's what a real friend does. I want to ask you the question today. Are you ready to ask yourself, not how can I find a true friend, but how can I be a true friend? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've spent together. And according to your will and grace, the time we'll spend over the next four weeks as we think about friendship and what it means. Now help us, Lord, as we process this message in Jesus' name.